Welcome to the SCC English podcast number 18 from the English Department of St. Columba's College, Dublin in Ireland. This is Julian Gurdam. See more at our blog, sccenglish.ie. Last year, around this time, I did a series of revision podcasts on Macbeth, which pupils found useful, leading up to the Leaving Certificate in June. And so this year, we'll post another series of weekly talks, this time on King Lear. As I said last year, it's really important to keep a set text fresh after almost two years of study. You should know it very well by now. But it's important that in your exam, you use this knowledge in a lively, responsive and coherent way. So the main purpose of these podcasts, each lasting about 10 to 15 minutes, is to prompt thoughts about the play. If you disagree with me, so much the better. That means that you're fully engaging with the text. This isn't supposed to be a definitive line-by-line analysis of the first scene, but rather a chat to get you thinking. By the way, there are also a couple of revision podcasts on Leaving Cert poems on our site, www.sccenglish.ie, with more due. In future weeks, I'll look at some key characters, scenes and themes from King Lear. And there will also be, like last year, a quotation self-test. Make sure you're spending a little time each day learning quotations. In this first talk, I'll be examining Act 1, Scene 1, and suggesting what it tells us about the characters, Shakespeare's purpose, and about what is to come later. Shakespeare doesn't waste time at the starts of his great tragedies. All four open disconcertingly with a sense of confusion and unease. Hamlet on the battlements of a haunted Elsinore castle, Macbeth with three bizarre witch-like creatures chanting on a heath, and Othello in a murky conversation down a back alley between two men, one of whom will turn out to be one of the most unremittingly evil characters in all literature. And in King Lear, again, we are pitched straight into the middle of a rather flustered conversation, which hits on possibly the central theme of this play, division and disorder. Then, 32 lines in, the play proper seems to start with the arrival of the central character, the king. We now expect, and at first seem to receive, an orderly, formal court scene. It does start like that, but of course rapidly and frighteningly descends into chaos, into division and disorder. So, as with the other tragedies, this scene prefigures the central ideas of the play. This opening scene is so extraordinary, so explosive and memorable, that it can cause problems in essays. I've read many over the years in which pupils were so taken by Act 1, Scene 1, that they spent far too much time on it, frequently getting caught up in the plot details. There's a long play after this. Just make sure that your own essay isn't imbalanced and that you give due weight to other crucial elements of the play, particularly the storm scenes and the defining tragic ending. You could build any essay around the very first lines of the four great tragedies. In this case, it seems to be a relatively inoffensive bit of court chatter or gossip. Kent says, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. And his colleague Gloucester replies, It did always seem so to us, but now, in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he values most. These lines bear some scrutiny. Kent is saying that the king prefers one senior figure over another, a divisive and unwise way to rule a kingdom. And Gloucester retorts that, no, no, the king has measured exactly the two parts of the kingdom they will each get, and you can't tell the difference. Quote, 
equalities are so weighed that curiosity in neither can make choice of either's moiety. Oh yeah, as if. Significantly, Gloucester uses the word value. It appears not which of the dukes he values most. And so in this apparently confusing and casual exchange, we go straight to the heart of the play. We are alerted that we are about to meet a king whose judgment wavers, whose favour you can't be sure of, and who puts a value even on his own sons-in-law. On the surface, it seems, he likes the appearance of equality and even-handedness, justice, we might say. But underneath, you can't know if he's actually fair. What Kent and Gloucester don't mention is that while Goneril at Albany and Regan Cornwall might be getting precisely equal shares, Cordelia is heading for a better part. The rest of this opening, before Lear arrives, turns to a laddish, jokey conversation about Edmund, Gloucester's illegitimate son. We all know now exactly what Edmund's true character is, but the first time round he is inscrutable, saying very little. We only find out what he's truly thinking at the start of the next scene in his fascinating soliloquy, Thou nature art my goddess. The subplot echoes and deepens the main one. And here, as an audience, we're at least subconsciously being alerted to the idea that this play will partly be about the relationships between parents and children, between elders and subordinates. And then Lear enters. This scene is so well known that I myself don't want to fall into the trap I cautioned against earlier of getting caught up in the details of the plot. And you all know very well exactly how the scene rapidly progresses to disaster, about Goneril and Regan's lip service to love and Cordelia's refusal to play this game. So I don't want to rehash all that. Let me instead give you a fairly long quotation from the critic Tony Tanner from his excellent introduction to the Everyman Shakespeare series, which deals with exactly what the nature of Lear's fundamental mistake is. And by the way, it's not getting all three daughters wrong. No, he's already gone awry before that, in his initial basic error of dividing the indivisible. So this is what Tony Tanner writes. Quote, Lear's initial fault is exposed in Gloucester's opening words when he refers to the division of the kingdom. Almost immediately we see this made literal when Lear takes a map and divides the realm into three. It is a deed of horrifying irresponsibility and introduces division into every unit of the society, family, court, realm. His explanation of what he is doing would have been even more shocking to the Elizabethans. Meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map there. Know that we have divided in three our kingdoms. It is our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, crawl towards death. Since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state. By darker, he here means simply hidden, but it is an ominous word coming from a king, and indeed from this initial act there will spread a darkness over the realm until by the end, quote, all's cheerless, dark and deadly. That a king the great hub of the social wheel, the maintainer of unity and order, should suddenly express the wish to shake off cares and crawl like a child or a wounded animal toward death, is almost terrifying, if only because he should represent, 
indeed embody, stability, concord, not division, the inexorable responsibilities involved in positions of power and duties firmly discharged and unquestioningly upheld. He wants to keep the name of king, but leave the execution of his duties to others, a fatal attempt to to divide word from thing. It is as though the linchpin should withdraw itself from the wheel, the cornerstone rebel from its place in the structure of the church. No wonder the scene ends with a sense of dissolution and scattering. Kent banished thus, and France and Collar parted, and the king gone tonight. The division has started, initiating an atmosphere marked by rapid, furtive, untimely and uncertain movement. Shakespeare was clearly fascinated by what might happen if the great central maintaining principle of social order was withdrawn or withdrew itself. End of Tony Tanner's quotation. Perhaps the most ironic line of the play is spoken by Lear in this opening speech. He says he is publicly announcing his daughter's several dowers that future strife may be prevented now. Of course, it's precisely by doing this that he sends his own family and then the whole kingdom of Britain into terminal strife. We all know by now that this play is fundamentally about blindness. We're two pages in and there have been two eventually catastrophic examples of this. Lear's inability to see here the surely inevitable result of this decision to divide the kingdom and Gloucester's blindness to his own second son. Back to Tony Tanner. Quote, Lear's sudden abdication leaves a vacuum where there should be a majestic and irresistible principle of order, custom and degree. And in that vacuum, the deep realities of human nature are afforded a dark arena in which to play themselves out. Wishing only to shake off his cares, shrug off his burdens, divest himself of rule, Lear discovers that there is no stopping the divesting, and he will be stripped of his knights, his house, his clothes, his very reason, and finally of Cordelia. His terrible fate lies coiled and nascent in his opening words. End quote. Lear ends up, of course, with nothing. The word from Cordelia which gives him a first push down that slope. By the way, there's a very useful online revision facility in the Shakespeare Clusty search engine. You can link on the post for this podcast and through our Shakespeare's links section at sccenglish.ie. Type in the word nothing and keep your search contained to King Lear. By looking at the list of references, think about the way this word moves through the play. Then we get the love test. The emotions in this scene might be real, needy love, disloyalty, greed, anger, but the plot is fairy tale, and the tripartite nature of the test means that an audience doesn't really expect it to go well. We're waiting for the twist from number three. What matters to Lear is worth or value, and he thinks that this can be measured, and measured not by deeds but by words. Words, of course, don't have to be connected to meaning. Regan tunes into Lear's needs with her line, I am made of that self-same metal as my sister, and prize me at her worth. Lear delights that the first two daughters are saying precisely what he wants. And then, again with tragic and disastrous irony, the third, Cordelia, herself insists on being precise, but on her own precision, not her father's. 
Again, I'm not going to spend time on Lear's reaction. Explosive, puerile, pathetic, over the top, and as many people have pointed out, also infantile. He's a child throwing his toys out of the pram. Again, you can cover this fairly quickly in an essay. Make sure you don't repeat yourself. I'll come back to the figure of Kent, an important man, in a future podcast. But let's go forward now to the exchange just before Cordelia leaves, with her new husband-to-be the King of France. Burgundy rejects Cordelia after thinking in terms of value. Her price is fallen. And it's left to France, who naturally, as Lear's equal and a foreigner, can speak his mind openly and without fear of repercussions, to state the truth in the most clear-sighted way. Love's not love, when it is mingled with regards that stand aloof from the entire point. And he inverts the language of value by saying that for him, Cordelia is most rich, being poor. France's love kindles to inflamed respect, precisely because she's got nothing, and he can see her for what she is. Think forward to the heat scene, Act 3, Scene 4, when Lear sees poor Tom and asks, Is man no more than this? Thou art the thing itself. He rips off his own clothes to be on the same level as the madman. Sometimes you need to lose in order to gain. When everyone else has gone, Goneril and Regan drop the pretense, and the poetry, by the way, the last 25 lines are in prose, and speak the truth. Goneril admits that Cordelia has been treated unfairly. With what poor judgment he hath now cast her off appears too grossly. And Regan says he has always been like this, partial and irrational. This final section is the opposite bookend to that first conversation between Kent, Gloucester and Edmund, people who are concerned about unruly waywardness. Just before I finish now, I'm going back to Macbeth, to a scene when Ross tells Lady Macduff that, quote, Cruel are the times when we are traitors and do not know ourselves, when we hold rumour from what we fear, yet not know not what we fear, but float upon a wild and violent sea each way and move. That wild and violent sea is going to become a lot more turbulent very shortly in King Lear. <laughs>